we have been studying the book of 1 John the last few weeks, and um, if you're kind of new to church or if you're new to the Bible, you might be thinking about, okay, well, 1 John, 1 John, so does that mean that, that we're talking about John the Baptist? He was the first John in the uh, New Testament. And the answer is no, this, this is not the book written by John the Baptist. Uh, 1 John was written by the Apostle John. And this is the second of the five books that he wrote in the New Testament, the first being the Gospel of John. Okay, then he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then, of course, the last book in the New Testament, Revelation, he also wrote. This, this John is the Apostle John. He's the brother to the Apostle James, and they were sons of a man named Zebedee, and they were referred to that way in the Bible, sons of Zebedee. Uh, John um, had a, quite a finish to his life uh, on an island by himself, and um, you can read about that in, in these books and, of course, in Revelation. But one of the coolest things about John, the Apostle John, is that he had another really cool nickname, he and his brother. They were called the Sons of Thunder. Like, that's an awesome name. And when I think about that, I think it's more appropriate for, like, an NFL defensive line that's, like, super dominant. Like, they're, they're like, the leaders in the, of sacks every year. Or maybe, like, on a baseball team, the two guys that, that hit the home runs all the time, you know, they might be called the Sons of Thunder. Um, and I was just thinking that if... After we're gone, there's ever like an additional book added to the Bible, and I just happen to be in it. I'm real. I'm really hopeful that I'll have like a really cool nickname instead of um, you know corny joke guy or washed up fast white guy from Golden or whatever it is like that. I was thinking about maybe something like New Testament Ninja sounds kind of good or uh, Sultan of Scripture. So if you happen to be around and I'm not, and they're going to put a book in the Bible, maybe you could just make a suggestion for me. That'd be really cool. Um. But regarding 1 John chapter 5 that we're going to study today, uh, there's so much in this book. I wish that we had like six to eight weeks to teach. There's a lot of truths in here. We're going to try to, we're going to, try to work through them together just in some 30 or 40 minutes here. Uh, but I, I mean, really, we could, we could spend 30 to 40 minutes on, on each one of these little segments. But today we're talking about confidence. We're talking about assurance. And I kind of found it fascinating how the level of your confidence in life depicts the kind of outcome that you're going to have in various situations. When you think about times in your lives or scenarios in which you are extremely confident that you know something to be true or that you know that you have the right answer to something, I'm pretty sure that you're going to stand your ground in those situations. You're going to stand up for what you believe to, to be right and true. And sometimes, though, confidence breeds arrogance. You take a great a sports team, like a championship team, or maybe an undefeated team that goes in, into a game against an opponent that, that they should just annihilate. And they come in a little bit too confident, what happens? They get upset. Great example of that is Super Bowl forty-eight. Some of you may remember Broncos versus Seahawks. Yeah, murmurs allowed. Um, we had one of the most prolific offenses in the history of the NFL going against a pretty good Seattle defense. But the first play of the game, you might recall, what happened? Yes, the uh, center snapped the ball over Peyton Manning's head. He retreats back to the end zone, and it's a safety. Two points for the opponent. That's how the game started. And I don't know about you, but I was thinking to myself, this is going to be a long day. And it was. It was a really long day, and it was one of the most lopsided victories not in our favor in Super Bowl history. So sometimes confidence can be bad, but confidence is also a very powerful state of mind. 
And when you consider that your aversion to risk changes when you're confident, in other words, your tolerance for risk increases the more confident you are. So if, if, if I were to say that tomorrow you could start the business of your dream, you could, you could do whatever you wanted to do, have your own company, and you would have a less than a 1% chance of failure, you probably would all take that bet, wouldn't you? I mean, would you guys, I mean, I would, I would take those odds. I mean, less than 1% chance, like I can't lose. All I got to do is write my name at the top of the test and you get an A type of a situation. Pretty straightforward. You're going to jump all in. Your performance in work or school changes the more confident you are. You all know that, that, that test that you studied well for and you were well prepared. You went into it thinking, I'm feeling pretty good. I think I should get an A on this. When you're an expert of your craft and you've done something for 10,000 hours or you become an expert, you've done it 100 or 1,000 times, you, you know that you're going to probably do a pretty good job at that. Your dating life improves the more confident you are. Ladies, I know how it works. You know, you uh, go out and get your hair colored and then you hit the tanning beds and get, get your bronze on and you order your new MAC makeup kit. Mm-hmm. Next thing you know, you're feeling like Taylor Swift all up in your bathroom, you know, haters going to hate, going to shake it off. I know how the whole thing works. I've seen it. I've seen it. And guys, don't laugh because I could do the one about you too. But it's not that fun because all you did is take a shower and find some jeans that didn't have holes in them. So it's not quite as um, funny or meaningful. I don't, know what, I don't know what you see when you look at me. Um, frankly, I don't really feel equipped to you know, help lead a church or to teach sermons. I don't even have a college degree. Um, I certainly don't feel worthy of marrying the woman that I married. Uh, oftentimes, I, I remember my insecurities and I know my flaws and my weaknesses. Um, when I was 12 or 13 years old, I, I hated going to the swimming pool, although I loved swimming, because I was afraid that, you know, once I take my shirt off, I was this little skinny, scrawny kid with ribs poking out everywhere and little twerpy legs and stuff, and I was very self-conscious about that. And even going into college, I got signed to play Division II football, and I was 153 pounds. That's not exactly an equation for success in and of itself, although it did tell me and teach me that if you can outrun the big guys that are trying to hurt you, you can do quite well. Um, To make matters worse, I, I had sprained my ankle. I had torn all the ligaments in my ankle playing summer baseball, right before training camp my freshman year. I had just broken up with my college, or my high school sweetheart, rather. Um, I, uh, I failed my first chemistry test, got a 42%, and, and things weren't looking too hot for me. I was not very confident. But the truth is that your worth and your value are very closely related to the voices that you listen to in life. I think about my wife, it, Thank God for the power of the Holy Spirit. She thinks I'm handsome, and she thinks I'm pretty smart and hysterically funny. So this is, it's a great marriage, as you can imagine. Um, so I'm going to listen to her. But there is one voice that has spoken that has said that you are valuable enough for God, the Creator, to send His Son to a defiled and putrid place to exchange His throne his crown of perfection for your imperfection. So I wonder if you're listening to that voice today. There is one voice that has spoken that has prepared a seat at the king's table for you 
so that you can dine and celebrate with your maker forever. Are you listening to that voice today? And there's one voice that has spoken that said that you have everything you need to be blessed in this life and to be a blessing to other people. Are you listening to that voice today? The Bible talks about healthy confidence. In fact, in the very definition of the word faith, we see the word confidence. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, the writer writes, Faith is the confidence in things hoped for, and it's the assurance of things not seen. So how confident are you today in what you're hoping for? How confident are you today in the things that you're praying for, you and your family? If I take you a step further, that freshman year of college, uh, I was supposed to redshirt, which means that you know, you're not going to suit up and you're not going to travel. It's like an extra year to prepare and all that stuff. And um, Oddly, about three or four weeks in, I found myself traveling to away games, although I hadn't played it all yet. We were on a Saturday night game in Grand Junction against what used to be Mesa State University, now Colorado Mesa, and we're just getting pummeled, and it's like 20 degrees out. I'm over on the sidelines, you know, teeth chattering, just shivering, and our special teams coach, Jim Juliana, walks over to me and says, hey, Sump, you know how to return kicks? I said, yes. He said, okay, you're in. So I trotted out there, and I stood kind of in the middle of the field, roughly near the goal line, and And the guy kicked the ball, and as it was up in the air and coming down to me, the only thing I could think about was, don't get killed. Whatever you do, just go where the people aren't. That's that's literally what I thought. It was just sensible logic. So I catch the ball, and I take off running down the field. And I, I kind of vaguely remember maybe just kind of getting hit on the side here or there, and I keep running. And next thing I know, it's a 55-yard kick return, which was the longest of the season that far. And so that single event, that single kick return, changed not only the trajectory of my college career, but also a pathway for professional career. And maybe you're today like I was then. Maybe you're kind of in a funk. God's not really answering your prayers right now. You're, you're stuck. It's quite possible that you are just one affirmatively answered prayer away from a breakthrough. You might just be one yes away from the game being completely changed for you in your life. But you're about to quit. You're about to stop. And now is not the time to stop. It's time to cling to the God that gives you confidence, the great provider, to surround yourself with family and church family that you can trust to love and support you and hang in there. And we'll keep waiting for that breakthrough with that confidence in the one that you can be confident in. Because ultimately, the source of your confidence will shape the way that you see your entire life. Here's what I mean. If you find your confidence in money or, or status or the opinions of others, that's where you're going to go to get your confidence. You're going to seek approval there. And, and God starts to fade out while the world starts to fade in. To say it another way, if you believe that there is a God, do you believe that he created the heavens and the earth? Do you believe that he created you? Do you believe that there was a man named Jesus that walked this earth? Do you believe that he was 
hung on a cross to die and buried in a tomb? And do you believe that he walked away from that tomb alive and ascended back with the Father in heaven? Do you believe that because he died that you can live and flourish not only in this life but in the life to come? If you don't, listen, I pray that you would follow the breadcrumbs of truth. Whether you look to physics or science or, you know, creation or the human body or the transformed lives of somebody that you know, whatever it is, keep seeking that truth. And by the way, we'll be here to pray with you after service. Love to do that. But for the Christians in the room, John is writing here to say this, that if you really believed those things, then you would also believe that it's important to listen to and accept the things that Jesus said. So John points out in chapter 5 that he who accepts, excuse me, he or she who accepts Jesus also accepts his commands. If you accept Jesus, you're going to accept his commands. And let me be very clear about something. I think this is important to say that this concept of obedience has very little to do with salvation. Very little. The only the only Correlation between obedience and salvation is really the fact that you need to accept it. There's one way to salvation, and that's through God's gift of grace and only through that gift of grace. So let's not, let's not blend obedience with salvation here necessarily. Obedience to Jesus is about listening and applying what he said for your life. But man has taken and manipulated and tweaked what was meant to bring joy and well-being in life and turned it into a set of regulations and religions that makes life feel burdensome and just not worth it sometimes. Makes it kind of stinky and less enjoyable. And if I'm being honest with you, I, I denied accepting Jesus for 23 years of my life. Primarily because I thought it would make life less fun. I wasn't ready to get my crap together and pursue a God that is holy and righteous. But i got to tell you, my life's a lot more fun now than it was before then. It's a lot more purposeful and it's a lot more meaningful. The greatest events of my life have happened after I accepted Jesus Christ. There's a lot more fruit in my life now. I have a lot more reasons to get through really sucky times now with him on my side. And somebody here today has identified as a Christian for a really long time. And you have lost sight of the intrinsic reason why God set boundaries in our lives in the first place. You see, Jesus didn't want you to lose your mind on that referee that blew the call in the big game. He didn't want you to lash out at him and act like a complete idiot because Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed and and ridiculed and criticized and, and all of those sorts of things. And God didn't want you to hoard every good gift that's been given to you in your life when there are people who are hungry and freezing and reeling in pain. Because Jesus kind of knows what it's like to go hungry, to reel in pain. And God didn't want you to take for granted a wonderful spouse that he gave you and spend your time pursuing other people, spend your time satisfying sexual desires in illegitimate ways. Because he too knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what that feels like. Verse 3 is the first verse we're going to look at here in in chapter 5 of 1 John. 
And he writes simply, in fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. This is love for God. Loving God means keeping his commands. Now, when we choose to disobey God, we sin. And sin means little more than basically the absence of love. That's a great definition of sin, the absence of love. If we love properly, we wouldn't sin. But if we love properly, I think more people would come to know Jesus because they would actually experience him and and his existence would be substantiated. That's that whole evidence of things not seen. What evidence is there to somebody who doesn't know Jesus that he's real, that he's authentically pursuing them, and he comes to bring life and not to condemn but to serve and love if we don't love and show the signs of Jesus in our lives? Because, see, when somebody feels your love, it brings out, like, all the happy chemicals that happen inside the human body. I think it's a lot like a puppy or a dog that waits for you at your door when you walk in at the end of a workday, and it's wagging its tail, and it's so excited to jump on you and give you kisses. It's the happy feeling that comes when somebody feels love. And, And God commanded all these things because he understands the positive effects of love. He understands how that circle works. And somebody needs to hear this as well, that God doesn't expect you to get perfect before you come to him. He doesn't expect us. In fact, he doesn't even expect us to live a perfect life. He expects us to work toward becoming like his son Jesus and to try to eliminate sin from our life because as we're learning, it's not very productive and fruitful. And God doesn't tell us to never sin again. He doesn't say that. He tells us repeatedly, though, to love. You know what I think the greatest barrier to Christianity is? It's not atheism or agnosticism. It's not universalist church or Islam or any of that. I I think the greatest barrier to Christianity is Christians. I think it's true. A lot of Christians, by and large, and why I understand there's a very significant inward benefit to becoming a Christian like peace that surpasses all understanding, wisdom, forgiveness, all of those wonderful fruits, inward fruits of accepting Jesus. I got to tell you that self-focused Christianity leaves out one of the greatest aspects of being a believer in Jesus, and that is to bringing that love and that joy to other people. We don't listen and obey his suggestions and his commands, and the effects of that are that people are left feeling lonely and hurt and broken the very things that Jesus came to heal. And when I think about, I just heard this last week, it's frightening to me, the number of suicides that are happening in the young people, even in our backyard here in Jefferson County. It's crazy. And if you think that those kids are just mentally off for some reason, or they got chemical imbalances inside that are causing to take their lives, I think you're fooling yourself. I think it's because they're not feeling consistently loved and poured into by the people around them whether it's the other students in the school or whether it's the teachers or whether it's us as their family or their parents or grandparents. We have an obligation and God understood all of this even before the fall of man in the garden. He knew. And you got to remember that people can argue with your religion and they can argue with creation and evolution and absolute truth and all of those things. But there's two things they can't argue with. They can't argue with your story 
and they can't argue with the way that you make them feel. Love, real authentic love, produces a special feeling that can change someone's life. Second thing that John says that when you accept Jesus that you will also accept is his victory. His victory. Victory over what? The very next line in that verse 3 that we just read says, and I want you to pay careful attention to this. It says, and his commands are not burdensome. They're not meant to be a burden on you. And in verse 4, he says, For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, and that is our faith. That's what it means there, even our faith. Our faith is the victory that has overcome the world. Maybe you're willing to accept Jesus, but you're still out there trying to win a war on your own against a world that is very unforgiving. All of those daily influences that ruthlessly oppose God's will and his way that he set forth for us to live are causing you undue burden and stress. The scripture in the second part of verses 3 and 4 there means that when you let Jesus lead your life, you will have the power through the Holy Spirit to say no. No, I'm not going to let my political perspective and stance divide me from other people. No, I'm not going to wear that shirt that might reveal more of me than what is beneficial for a married man or woman that come into my place of business or into my church to see of me. I'm not going to succumb to singing Christmas songs before Thanksgiving. No, just say no, people. It's called living in unity and harmony. Adam Goldberg, our wonderful bassist, reminded me this morning that today we are one day closer to being done singing Christmas songs. So there you go, Adam. What, what? Scrooge McGoldberg over there. I thought it was funny myself, but our general, the general of, that's leading the war that we're in, Jesus, has won the war, but you still got some commands left to execute. And obeying them will, I promise you, obeying them will make life far less burdensome and difficult than trying to do it on your own. I promise. And then thirdly, John says that he who accepts Jesus also accepts his testimony. In verse 9, he writes, We accept human testimony, But God's testimony is greater because the testimony of God, which he has given about his son, whoever believes in the son of God accepts this testimony. I want to read to you a little excerpt. There was a guy named Matthew Henry, and if you study the Bible or if you look at commentaries, Matthew Henry was a Welsh, an Englishman in the late 1600s and 1700s that has written some brilliant commentary on on the Bible. And I I ran across this as I was digging into this, and this kind of blew my mind. I mean, he kind of says what's sort of, I mean, what needs to be said before the days of PC. So let me read this briefly to you. Here's what Matthew Henry said. Nothing can be more absurd than the conduct of those who doubt as to the truth of Christianity. While in the common affairs of life, they don't hesitate to proceed on human testimony and would deem anyone else out of their senses, out of their mind, who declined to do so. Here's the thing. We accept human testimony all the time. We're, we're gullible people. I mean, we'll accept a word or opinion from somebody, whether it's true or false, 
really any time of day. And if you don't believe me, there's a percentage of this room that's going to go home tonight and you're going to turn on CNN and you will believe only what CNN tells you. There's a percentage of this room that will go home tonight and turn on Fox News and you will believe only what Fox News says. There's a percentage of this room that will go home and turn on Oprah and you will believe only what Oprah says. And there's a percentage of this room that will actually believe that the Rockies will be good next year. When you talk to Scott in February, he will tell you that every single year. Listen, when God speaks, we need to listen. And and his word, the Bible, is is a really good place to start. It's an excellent place to seek truth. All right, you're thinking, that's all great, Brian, but, but what are the results? Are there any benefits here to, to doing these things? I'm always, I'm always like you, like, what's in it for me? So let me share these with you. In this short passage, chapter 5, we see several times John using the phrase, so that you may know, or we know, which is why the sermon is titled what it is today. And the results of accepting Jesus are assurance and conviction. And he says, first fold, that he says that you will know that you have eternal life. He says, you will know when you have eternal life. So, so I'm curious, if somebody asked you today, like right now, are you sure you're going to heaven? How would you respond to that? I'm a good person. I go to church. I pray. I read the Bible. I'm spiritual. I believe that that a guy named Jesus really came to earth and walked the earth? The Bible doesn't really say any of those get you to heaven. Verses 11 through 13 says, and this is the testimony, the testimony that he talked about a few moments ago. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever doesn't have the Son doesn't have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Listen, every time you think this life really sucks, you got to remind yourself, it gets so much better. And every time you think this life is really, really good, you need to remind yourself, it gets so much better. The most important thing that you need to be 100% certain of today is, is that you have been saved. And that you know that you know that you know where your ultimate residence will be. Next, John says that the benefits, the results of accepting Jesus are that your prayers will be heard and answered. Now, there's a very important component here to those two words in yellow. Because I hear a lot of people, and I do this sometimes too, we say, Lord, Lord, hear my prayer. Receive my prayer today. But what would happen if God only heard our prayers and never responded to them? Verses 14 and 15, John says, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. But then he goes on further. He says, And we know that if he, or he, we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. Now, if you spend some time on that scripture, you're probably, if you're like me, you're going to really focus and highlight the first part, and you're really going to focus and highlight the second part, but you're going to miss that little third part in there, that little third line, which says, according to his will. 
What does that mean? Well, first of all, if you need a promise to hang your head on today, that's a really good one. And I encourage you to uh, spend some time on that. But those who have seen the glory of God and the the magnitude of his power and fury firsthand would tell you today that, that the simple fact that we can even approach God is astounding. You think about the apostle Paul, who was known as Saul, and he walked on the road to Damascus. He had an encounter with the glory of God. And if you recall, Scripture says that it was a blinding and a powerful light that not only brought him to his knees, but that blinded him for several days until God decided that it was time for him to have his eyesight restored. It transformed Paul, and he didn't forget. Today's grossly desensitized and entitled society has forgotten a people that 2,500 years ago were exiled because they disobeyed God and they forgot about his provisions for them. And for thousands of years, you could rarely enter into the presence of God without just a kind of a unique circumstance. It was a privilege and reverent honor. So the good news is you can approach God. And you can ask him anything you want, but you need to seek and understand his will. And it's still God's will today that we approach him with reverence, respect, and authority. But also, if you look at James 4, this is James, the brother of Jesus, he said, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with selfish motives. How often are you praying for other people? How often are you praying that you can magnify God's love and his power? How often are you praising the name of God publicly to people who don't know him? And have you recently revisited all of the times that God has answered prayers in your life? That he has given you breakthrough and promise and hope? And I wonder what would happen if you put a penny into a jar every single time God did that. And over time, I mean, what would that add up to? Actually, that's not a bad idea, Joe. We might want to think about that. A prayer penny jar. But I think over time, we lose, we forget what God has done for us, just like the, the Jewish people did. Next, John writes that as an, accepting, an acceptance of Jesus that we will have power over sin. When you were a kid, you probably wanted to have special powers. Did anybody kind of wish you had a special power as a kid? You're being honest. I know it was probably like, you, you wanted to fly, be invisible or invincible. You wanted to be able to teleport or read somebody's mind. That would have been great before I started dating Jill. <clears throat> but there's one universal special power that every single person has, whether you're a believer in Jesus or not. And that is the power of free will. The power to choose how we act or how we think, or how we respond to people and to things. The power to choose right and wrong. And any Marvel-like superpower really isn't all that different from the power of free will in that they both can breed selfish benefits or selfish byproducts. And God understands, and we understand, that selfishness breeds sin. But God gave us the power to conquer over our selfish nature. And he gave us the power and ability to fight against ourselves. And it sounds sort of weird, Brian. We're fighting against ourselves. Well, yeah, we kind of are. In verses 18 and 19, John wrote that we know 
that anyone born of God does not continue sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Listen, sin hurts us, and it hurts other people. And once we depart from this life to the next, I think we'll fully realize the extent of the fullness of Christ's victory. But we're still fighting a battle, and the Spirit, it says the Spirit of God is the sword of victory. If you look at Ephesians 6, 17, Paul wrote about the armor of God, and he wrote about the sword of the Spirit. The interesting fact about a sword is that it's both an offensive and a defensive weapon. And we use the sword of the Spirit to defend against Satan and his lies and all of the crap that he tries to drag back into our life. But we use it offensively to guide our mind and our body to make good and pure and whole decisions. Satan loves making us think that it's okay to exchange short-term gain for long-term glory, and that's not the case. And lastly, John wrote that if you accept Jesus, that you will also have understanding. Understanding. In verse 20, he said, We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He's the true God and eternal life. When someone doesn't understand your perspective, we'll go to great lengths to argue our point, won't we? I mean, you just turn on the, like the presidential debate for a while, it's sort of nauseating, or maybe worse. I mean, it's bad. And I get, I get why people are standing up for what they believe to be right, but you're talking about understanding? They're not getting people to understand their side of the coin. They're just separating themselves. My little three and four-year-olds, bless their heart, they have these invisible little earplugs that they seem to insert at the most inopportune times. And when they have these invisible earplugs in, the only way to get them to pay attention sometimes is, hey, talking to you, I would, I would like to have your eyes for a moment. And I want you to know that if you don't stop, if you don't stop, fighting over the toys, we're going to take them away. If you don't finish your dinner, you're not going to get dessert. And if you don't stop hitting your mom or your sister, you're going to get a spanking. And yes, we spank our kids on occasion, so before you send me any nasty emails, I want you to remember that God has his own way of disciplining and correcting us to make us go down the right path and not make poor choices. Jill and I try tirelessly to get our girls to understand that poor choices breed poor outcomes. And John in this passage is trying to tell us that when we quiet ourselves, spend time with God and spend time in his word, that we will have understanding, a proper perspective for difficult times that are going to get you through. A word for somebody that needs to hear some encouragement or some truth. It's kind of like an athlete with no clarity or understanding about the game plan or a manager or a a worker that doesn't understand what we're trying to accomplish. What kind of autonomy do I have? What is the mission of the company and and what do we value? They're always going to underperform. God's trying to get through to you today and he's trying to tell you that his love and his Holy Spirit and his word are valuable tools to be used for good. 
and he's waiting for you to stop dragging your feet. He's waiting for you to embrace these gifts and let them produce a new confidence. A confidence that doesn't repulse people or drive them away, but that softens their heart and changes their reason for existence. He's given you the playbook. It's time to trust it, to follow it, to execute the game plan. So let's pray. God, we cannot do this without you. I've tried. I've tried time after time and it just doesn't work. It's never worth it. But the crazy thing is, God, you didn't desire for us to do this on our own. You desired for us to be in relationship with you, in communion, doing life together, having an outlet and a resource to trust and to follow, a guide, a roadmap for life. You didn't want us to have undue stress and burden. The word says to cast your worries and anxieties upon the Lord and and let you deal with them. God, I love this church and I love that I don't have to do this alone. I love that you made a way through your son, Jesus, that whoever accepts him shall have not only everlasting life, but a reason and a purpose for this life. God, we're challenged today, and I know we're a little bit stirred up, but we're leaning all in on you, acknowledging you in our ways, not leaning on our own understanding, trusting you to make the path straight and narrow for us. We love you, God, and we thank you for first loving us. We pray that you'd be glorified in everything we do. We thank you, Jesus. Amen.